Well, what comes to mind when you hear the words joy, pleasure, satisfaction? For some of you of a certain age, the lyrics to the Rolling Stones song, Can't Get No Satisfaction, instantly come to mind. Some of you don't know who the Rolling Stones are. Maybe for you, joy, pleasure, and satisfaction feel as elusive as it did and does for Mick Jagger. You know it's out there, you just don't know where to find it. The point is, we all want to be satisfied. We all want to experience the pleasures of life. But where do we find it? Is it in money? The right job? The right spouse? More sex? More success? Is it in making the most of this life? What, what Robin Williams' character, Mr. Keating, told his students to do in the movie Dead Poet Society? Carpe. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Is it to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield, as poet Alfred Lord Tennyson once wrote? What's the path to lasting joy, pleasure, and satisfaction? Well, our sermon passage this morning helps us with the answer to this ever-pressing question. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 16. If you don't have one, you can find Psalm 16 on page 9 of the worship guide you got on your way in. Now, Psalm 16 is a glorious psalm. On its own, it is a majestic body of work, arguably one of David's finest and most famous psalms. But what adds to its beauty is the way David's been whetting our appetite for it. In Psalm 14, David reflected on on God's diagnosis of humanity. We're all fools. None of us is good. In Psalm 15, David gives us a snapshot of this blameless man who dwells with God on his holy hill. Thankfully, there is one who is good, but we're not him. And then in Psalm 16, David leads us straight to the fountainhead, the source of all true goodness and blessing. It's, it's as if David's saying to us, yes, I am a fool. I'm not good, and I'm not the man that's described in Psalm 15. Therefore, Psalm 16, I'm going to the one who is good and taking refuge in him. So David's, David's been laying the groundwork for us to Psalm 16 all along. In fact, he picks up right where he leaves off in the last verse of Psalm 15. What does it look like to never be moved? That's Psalm 16. So Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. 
Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, the superscript attributes King David as this psalm's author, which Peter and Paul both affirm in the book of Acts, which Mario read for us earlier. But what's not clear to us is the immediate setting out of which these words are born. But whatever the situation is, what we see is David exemplifying a deep and abiding trust in God. Structurally, the psalm breaks down into two broad sections. Verses 1 to 8 make up the first section. They show us what it looks like to take refuge in God and why we should. And then verses 9 to 11, they make up that, the other section. And here David's going to show us the, the results of taking refuge in God. The eternal blessing that's promised exclusively to those who do trust in the Lord. And in every verse, every verse along the way, David embodies what is the main idea of this psalm. So the main idea of Psalm 16 is this. Those who take refuge in God enjoy the pleasures of God forever. Those who take refuge in God enjoy the pleasures of God forever. And we're going to break that, that main idea apart by, by taking closer looks at the two sections of this psalm. And these are going to serve as our two, our two main points. Heads up, there will be some, some sub-points and sections within those points. But main points, these are your two. Number one, our refuge in God. That's going to be verses one to eight, our refuge in God. And then point two, our pleasure in God, verses nine to 11. All right, so point one, our refuge in God, our refuge in God. So verse one opens with a petition to God. David wants God to protect him, to preserve him, watch over him, and guard him from trouble. We don't know what this trouble is yet, but I think David's going to clue us into this trouble a little later in the psalm. For now, what's important is to see that David's first step is to acknowledge his own neediness and then ask the Lord to help him. So he's like a, like a scared child at night running into their parents' bedroom. David runs to God for, for comfort and protection. The shepherd boy is asking God to be his shepherd and to watch over him the same way he watched over his sheep. And why, why does David come to God? What makes him so confident that God can do anything to help? Well, the answer comes to us 
right there in the second part of verse 1. Because God is his refuge. This is what we see David unpack in the rest of verses 1 and 2. David commits himself to God for preservation because God is his refuge. Because God has established his covenant with him. Because God is strong enough to preserve him. This is why David looks to God for preservation. God is his safest refuge. The the best bet he has at being preserved. And then David's going to double down on this. Declaring God not just to be a supreme refuge. But also his supreme authority. And his supreme goodness. For David it, it literally can't get better than God. In his eyes... God, does, God just doesn't set the bar. God is the bar. Since God is creator of all, then David says no good thing that he enjoys in this life can come apart from him. James writes in the New Testament that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. In fact, God is so good that, that when anything good gets severed from him, it ceases to be good. Now, it may remain good in a relative sense, but if it's not anchored in God, then it it loses its goodness. The Lord may bless us with reasonably good health, no doubt a good thing, a thing we all pray and hope for in this season. But if we use it to do what is selfish or evil or make health an idol and it leads us into sin— then we actually don't have a good thing. This world tempts us to look for good and satisfaction apart from God in this way. Satan convinces us that that it's actually possible. But to look for good outside the provision of God is the very essence of sin. And this is what David rejects wholesale in verse 2. He knows he'll he'll never find anything good outside of God. In his eyes, nothing else is worth very much apart from the Lord. And this, this tells us something crucial about the nature of God. David is saying something about who and what God is. God alone, God alone is the architect of all that is good. He's the source of every true delight, the wellspring of everlasting joy, and the guarantee of unending satisfaction. Whether heavenly or earthly, temporal or eternal, physical or spiritual, every good gift we experience, we experience from God and because of God. Which means that that God's goodness doesn't depend on us. Even if we reject or distort his goodness, God remains supremely good. He doesn't need us to be good. He is and always will be good apart from us. This is how supremely good God is. You know, if you're, if you're anything like me, you are probably much quicker to count up all the things going wrong in your life than all the good. But what David, what David is doing 
in these verses here is so instructive for us. Rather than sulk and feel sorry for himself, David expresses gratitude and he erupts with praise for the one who is good and who has only ever done good for him. And it's out of this abundance of of God's goodness that verses 3 to 8 come cascading and crashing down upon us like Niagara Falls. David has, he's set us up in verses 1 and 2 for what flows and follows out in verses 3 to 8. And he's going to focus on three things in particular in verses 3 to 8. These are our sub, your sub points. In verses 3 to 4, we see David's delight. David's delight. In verses 5 and 6, we, we get a picture of David's inheritance. David's inheritance. And then verses 7 to 8, we see David's counselor. David's counselor. And all three of these things show us how, how David is seeking refuge in God and how he's going to point us to the goodness of God. So let's look at verses 3 and 4, David's delight. In these verses, David's commitment to God spills out into a commitment to his people. He longs to be with the saints in the land, which, which simply means the people that God has redeemed, redeemed for himself, Israel. David wants to, to be around those who, who treasure the true and living God, who have experienced and know his saving grace. In his eyes, this is what makes a person excellent. It's what makes the people of God excellent. This doesn't mean that, that David delights in God's people instead of God. He means that he finds no pleasure in godless people or in their godless ways. What he wants is, is to live for God and with God. And so he wants to surround himself with other people who, who keep God supreme. God's people draw him in like, like a tractor beam. David is teaching us then that, that if we truly love God, then we will love his people. The two go together like peanut butter and jelly. There's no way to divorce a love of God and a love for God's people. Together they make the perfect sandwich. John writes in 1 John 5.1, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Jesus in John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Which means that if you say you love God, but you have little to no interest in being with his people, then your love for God is out of alignment. Something is off. Because to love God is to love his people. This is why if if you're not a member of a church and you say you love God, you should join a church. Because the local church is the arena in which God has given us to participate in the kind of delight that David shows in Psalm 16.3. The local church puts, it, it puts flesh and bone on our love for God. You know, on the flip side of that, if you are a member of a church, but that membership doesn't 
materialize or manifest itself in, in any real desire to, to actually be with other church members or to regularly gather with them or to be invested and involved in their lives, well, then David would urge you to check the pulse of your commitment to God. Because to truly love God means loving his people. It's this love, it's this kind of love for God's people that leads David to his rejection of the pagan worship that he describes in verse 4. What he put positively just a minute ago in verse 3, he now puts negatively in verse 4. He loves God and his people so much that he won't even dare think about cheating on them. So he says no to the multiplying sorrows of the world and yes to the sure and certain safety of the Lord because he knows to say no to God means certain misery and disaster. You remember the movie Gremlins. We all remember the movie Gremlins, right? Gizmo looks all adorable and harmless. But what happens if you feed him after midnight or he gets wet? He multiplies into all these horrible monsters whose only objective is to wreak havoc, destroy, and kill. And that's basically what David is saying happens when we seek refuge in something other than God. God guarantees safety, multiplying blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon his people. But the pleasures of the world, though they look harmless, they only bring havoc, multiplying sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow upon our heads. Friends, the, the world is just not worth it. It's, it's just not worth it. The most foolish thing that you and I could ever do is exchange the all-satisfying love of God for something that will only heap misery upon our heads in the end. It would be like handing your life savings over to Bernie Madoff and trusting him to invest it for you. Or, or like asking the, the waiter at Ruth's Chris to take back the choicest cut of steak you just ordered and instead bring you a plate of Twinkies. Don't take the bait that this world is offering you. Don't take it. Sin may look good, but Satan is hiding a hook of shame, misery, sorrow, and loss that will certainly follow and multiply. Instead of choosing the world to be your portion, choose this God. This is what we see David doing in these next set of verses, verses 5 and 6. Here he turns our attention to his inheritance. In these verses, David, David rests content in all the blessings, all the blessings that the Lord has secured for him. This is what's expressed in those four words that stand out in, the, in these verses. Portion, lot, lines, and inheritance. These words point, point us back to the time when, when Joshua divided the land by lot 
with, with these clear boundary lines that marked out the borders of Israel's land. This land was the people's inheritance that was to be passed down throughout the generations. And the land was highly valued in their eyes because it had been given to them by God. And, and it pointed to the reality that they were, in fact, God's people and that they were to dwell with him in his home. But the land itself, as important and as, as significant as it, as it was, wasn't what made the inheritance so beautiful. The even greater heritage was living in the very presence of God himself. This is what the tribe of Levi experienced. They were the one tribe who who did not receive a portion of land. God said to the Levites in Numbers 18.20, You shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So the priests and the Levites, they didn't have the security of of their own tribal area. They had to rely on God for their safety. So what David is doing in these verses is laying claim to that same kind of nearness and security with God. He lays claim to something even greater than the land. He lays claim to God himself. That's why he runs to God for refuge and not a piece of property or a bunch of possessions. He knows that living in God's presence provides him with more security than physical land could even come close to. The promised land would be conquered and the people would be exiled, but God would never leave or forsake them. That's the portion, cup, the lot, the lines, and the inheritance that, that David is taking up in these verses. It is God himself. Brothers and sisters, God is the greatest blessing he can give us. God is the greatest blessing he can give us. In him, the lines always fall for us in pleasant places. And we have a beautiful inheritance. If God gave you all the pleasures of this world, if he gave you heaven on earth, but he did not give you himself, would you be satisfied? No, in caps locks, highlighted, bold letters, no, you would not be satisfied. Even if you had everything, you would have nothing without God. But with God, your cup, your cup always overflows and your inheritance never runs out. If you're in Christ, if, if you are here this morning and you've repented of your sins and you've trusted in Jesus, just stop for a moment. Just stop and consider all the spiritual blessings that have been given to you by God in, in the Son. In him, God has forgiven your sins. He has removed them as far as the east is from the west. The sin that once prevented you from dwelling in his presence has been put away forever. In Christ, you've been justified. The righteousness that you once lacked, you now possess. And you now have access to the Father through the Son. And not only that, now you will be glorified with him. Enjoying his presence, delighting in this beautiful inheritance forever. 
God has not blessed you with a bunch of stuff. He's blessed you with himself. The Lord himself is our good. He is our good. That is where all of our confidence, all of our hope should be aimed. This means that that no matter what happens, if your health fails you, your reputation is slandered, your family abandons you, your spouse disappoints you, your job doesn't fulfill you, your expectations are not met, your very life plundered. Even if all of these things happen to you, the lines still will have fallen for you in pleasant places. Because in Christ, you possess an inheritance far better than this life and anything it could ever offer you. In him, you are always fenced in by God's sovereign goodness to you. And the lines, the lines he draws up for us are, are even better than the ones we would draw up for ourselves. That's how good he is. That's how absurdly, supremely good he is. That even when the lines don't seem to make sense to us, they're good, they're pleasant, and we can trust him. And this is the kind of unshakable confidence that we see David embody and explode with in in verses 7 and 8. Here David turns our attention to, to his counselor. So David, he continues to to set his gaze on the goodness of God in these next verses. But now he he takes us deeper, even into a a new dimension. In God, David finds a, a wonderful counselor who instructs him with his word and never abandons him. The Lord preserves David by providing him with counsel and instruction, remaining always at his right hand, leading him to the path of life. God's word becomes a a lamp to his feet and a light unto his path. God's testimonies become his heritage forever and the joy of his heart. God's testimonies are his delight and they are his counselor. Psalm 119, it just becomes becomes embodied in these verses in David. So in going the way that that God's word leads him, David has a sure foundation. He has one who is there to give him aid, strengthen him, help him, cause him to stand, upheld by God's righteous, omnipotent hand, as the hymn says. The right hand is considered considered the place of support or, or protection, and what David finds at his right hand is that he has like this, his, own, his very own personal secret service detail. He's got, he's got one that cannot be shaken. And so David rests confidently in this guide and counselor and personal escort that God has provided for him. And so what does David do? What, what does he, he follows God where his right hand leads him. Because Because his word is good, true, and trustworthy. It's leading him to the eternal pleasures that are waiting for him in verses 9 to 11. 
So what David's saying to us in these verses is that listening to God's word is a path that will lead to life. His word is a map. It's like a map to to the treasure that he's buried in Christ for all who will take refuge in him. And if we obey it, it leads us straight to him. Even when we lose our way, God grabs us by the right hand and he takes us to the treasure himself. And under the new covenant, this is even more true for you and me in Christ than it was for David in these verses. Because in Christ, God has has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us and, and he's written his law on our hearts. Remember how Jesus comforts his disciples just before his death in John 14, 26. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So brothers brothers and sisters, do you feel lost in this life? Do you feel lost a bit? Do do you feel like the, the night is indeed dark and the road long? Well, I've got news for you. It is. It is a dark and windy long night and road. But you are not forsaken. You are not forsaken. Remember whose hand you hold. Remember who holds your hand. And remember the word he's given to guide you along the way. His word will not fail you. And his hand will never let you go. You know, David's delight his inheritance, this counselor we've just been thinking about, all of these point to the infinitely worthy refuge we have at our disposal in God. David's building a case for God. Are you beginning to see how infinitely blessed we are when we, when we take him to be our chosen portion? Are you starting to see just how good this God really is? I mean, it can't, it can't possibly get any better than this, right? If Psalm 16 ended right here in verse 8, God would have done enough to prove himself worthy of all of our trust. But verse 8 isn't where the psalm ends. There's more. There's always infinitely more when we take refuge in this glorious God. And this leads us to Our next point, our next point, the pleasures of God in verses 9 to 11. The therefore that opens verse 9 functions like a hinge on which David swings the treasure chest of, of God's riches wide open, showing us the glory in store for the one who takes refuge in God. It signals the, the, the result of verses 1 to 8. Because David has sought refuge in the Lord, the pleasures God described in verses 9 to 11 are his. They now belong to him. These are the pleasures of God that the people of God are going to get to experience. And David, David zeroes in on three dimensions of, of divine pleasure all of them working together to 
to further bolster our confidence in in God and build the case for his trustworthiness. In verse 9, David enjoys the experience of God's peace. He gets God's peace in verse 9. And then this is going to lead him to the experience of God's power in verse 10. And then finally he's going he's to experience God's presence, God's very own presence in verse 11. So let's look at verse 9 uh, and that first dimension, God's peace. God's peace. In verse 9, David, David erupts with gladness at, at all the ways that God's proven himself faithful in all the verses prior. David is, he's overwhelmed with praise, delight, and a deep, pervasive joy. It's an all-consuming kind of joy that swallows him up whole, swallows up his whole being. From his head to his toe, David feels the peace of God surround him. The very thing he prays for in verse 1, he now experiences in verse 9. His flesh dwells secure. David is not shaken by his circumstances. The storm of his life has not sunk the ship he sails in. He's experiencing the pleasures of God's peace. And that peace becomes his gladness. This is the result of taking refuge in God. And why is this the case? Because because no one is more mindful of our needs or generous with his provisions of peace than God. He knows our hearts get troubled, that our circumstances make us weary, that we are weak and riddled with fear and anxiety. And yet God promises us peace, and when we take refuge in him, he always delivers it. This is why the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, in in Matthew 11 says, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Christ, we, we see that God's very desire for us is that we find rest, security, calm, and peace, and the refuge that he alone can provide. This is God's very heart for his people, that we come into him and out of that storm. His desire for this is is even stronger than our very own desire for this. He wants us to feel his peace. He wants us to feel that so much that he will be the one who walks into the teeth of all of our storms and then silences them. This is the kind of peace that God wants us to, to experience, the kind of pleasure that he wants us to feel. And it's the kind of peace that he alone provides and that we get to enjoy when we seek our refuge in him. And what is What's the anchor of this, this kind of peace? What is it that we see sparking David's joy in verse 9? Well, in one sense, it's the confidence that he feels and expresses back in verse 8. But it's also his experience of God's power in verse 10. 
That's what the four in, in verse 10 is signaling. Right? David, David, David experiences God's peace because of what he's confident that God's power over life and death will mean for him, what it's going to do for him. And then verse 10, it, it also answers the question that David kind of left us hanging with in verse 1. What David wants God to, to protect him from is death. He wants God to preserve his life. Sheol is the place of the dead. It's, it's the grave. And corruption refers to the bodily decay of those who go to it. So what David wants is God to preserve his life. David doesn't want God to abandon him to death, and he's confident that God won't let that happen. He expects God to preserve him and to be his refuge forever, even in death. But how does David know this? How, how can he be so confident? Well, because he knows the one he's taking refuge in is the only one who has power over death. And here's what I mean. David knew that death was coming for him. That's what the prophet Nathan told him in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13. That he would die and lie in the grave with his fathers. But David was also told that, that God would put one of his descendants on his throne. A king even greater than David, whose kingdom would never end. There would be no burying this king. Instead, this king would be the one burying death. Which is why Peter and Paul in Acts pick up Psalm 16 and apply it directly to Jesus and not David. They didn't understand David to be the fulfillment of Psalm 16. Instead, what they say David is doing is looking forward to the true Messiah, the Holy One who would kill death before death could turn him to dust. David, he's looking down the corridors of salvation history, and what he sees is Jesus living out Psalm 16. He sees Jesus walking out of his tomb alive, and so he speaks these words for Jesus. And so as, as David looked ahead and saw Jesus conquering and crushing death, he believed that somehow God's power would rescue his own body from the grave through this Messiah who would put an end to death forever. He knew that Jesus' own victory over death was somehow connected to his own. He didn't quite know how to connect all the dots but he knew that God would connect the dots through this coming Messiah. But here's the glorious, the glorious reality for us today. Jesus didn't just give himself over to death for David's sake. He also gave himself up over to death for us, for our sake. Jesus went to the cross to to pay the wages of our sin, experiencing the death that you and I deserved. But God raised him up to life, crushing death in his wake. 
And now he has raised him up in power and in glory and seated him on on the throne at his right hand, where Jesus now stands, ready to receive all who repent of their sins and take their refuge in him. And if we do that, if we do that, if we turn to him in faith, then we experience the same power over death that Jesus experienced. So if, if you are here and you are not a Christian, I wonder, I wonder for you, without Christ, what hope will you have? What hope will you have when death's cold grip comes for you? What hope will you have when the wages of sin demand your life? When they come demanding that you pay up? This kind of victory over the grave, it can only be found in the one who walked out of his. So friend, if you are here and not a Christian, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and live. And if you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, you got nothing to fear. You've You've got nothing to fear. Because Jesus walked out of his tomb, we will walk out of ours. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by by the glory and power of his Father, we too have been raised to walk in newness of life, and we will be raised to enjoy him forever in the life to come. By faith, You and I have been united to Christ in his resurrection and his life guarantees ours. His resurrection secures ours. This is what we're promised in in Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 15 makes the same promise. It's Christ's own resurrection that anchors our hope and ought to give us the same kind of steely-eyed confidence and resolve that David has in these verses. Nothing, nothing, not even death itself will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ, death has been swallowed up in victory. It has lost its sting and it has no power, no hold, no claim on you anymore. So live, so live right now like death and sin have no claim on you because they don't. Live like one who has been made alive together with Christ and who has been raised up with him and, and has a seat with him in the heavenly places. Leave the land of the dead and its dead works behind you because you don't live there anymore. You don't live in that land anymore. This is what we find David doing in verse 11. He leaves behind the land of the dead for the land of of the living. Verse 11. 
Verse 11 is what we experience. It's the experience of God's peace and power have been building towards this entire time. All the joy that David David expressed in verse 9, it now spills over in verse 11. Only now it's exponentially increased. Now the joy is full and the pleasure forever. Because God has, has been David's portion here in this life, David now enjoys God as his portion without end. This is what David was praying for. This is what he became confident of. This is what he, he anticipated. God himself was what he has been wanting all along. And this is exactly what God gives to David. This is what God gives to all of us who take refuge in him. He gives us himself. We get the pleasure. We get the pleasure of enjoying God in all his abundant fullness, all his radiant splendor, all his unspeakable majesty, all his eternal goodness. We get to stand under the waterfall of his glorious presence forever. We could, we could spend the rest of our lives inventing superlatives for the pleasures we get, and it would not come close to touching what is ours in Christ. That's what David is saying is in store for all of us who take refuge in God. It is to live before the face of God's blessing forever. Forever. We get to experience the the fullness of the Father looking upon us for all eternity. Not with a scowl of disapproval or, or judgment. His face will not be turned away from us in wrath or anger. No, he, he will look upon us with the face of a father who delights in his child. With a face that is always set upon us and never against us. With a face that is always saying, well done, good and faithful servant. If we walk in his ways, if we walk in his ways, if we take refuge in him, then we can rest confidently knowing that his face shines upon us and smiles. Even when things seem to be falling apart all around us. Though we, though we may live like refugees in this life, we will live in the mansions of the blessed in the next. For the one at God's right hand will lead us safely home to the eternal pleasures that he has acquired for us there. Jesus is, after all, the one seated at the Father's right hand, internally enthroned and forever experiencing the fullness of joy that was set before him. And in him, and only in him, we will share in that same joy. We'll, we will swim in that same ocean of infinite pleasure that King Jesus is swimming in right now. In the coming age, brothers and sisters, we will spend eternity diving deeper and deeper into the infinite ocean of God's kindness to us in Christ. We will swim in the recesses of God's very own hearts. 
And the deeper we go, the more we will understand. And the more we understand of it, the more we will see how immeasurable, how infinite, how ineffably sublime the one at God's right hand really, really is. It really will take forever to enjoy the pleasure God has for us in Jesus Christ. It will take forever to experience that pleasure, that kindness, that richness. So why not get busy enjoying him right now? You know, Dead Poet Society is a great movie. And Mr. Keating was a great teacher. But he told his students to seize the wrong thing. Because if carpe diem is all there is, then this life is as good as it will ever get. But Psalm 16 shows us a better way. Seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary. That's what Mr. Keating said. But not David. David says, seize God. Because he is extraordinary. Do you want to find lasting joy, pleasure, and satisfaction? Then do more than just seize the day. Seize God in Christ. If you don't, then this life will will be the best it ever gets for you. But if you do, if you take refuge in this God, oh, well then, brothers and sisters, you won't believe what our king has in store for you in the age to come. But you will have plenty of time to find out. For the one who takes refuge in God will enjoy the pleasures of God forever. Let's pray.